A few days prior to this podcast, I realized this was not going to be like any other podcast that I have done. Mursad Salakovich is a survivor of the Bosnian War in the early 90s. His remarkably detailed and harrowing account of the war is by no means a subject matter to be taken lightly. The Bosnian War was an international armed conflict that took place in Bosnia and Herzegovina between 1992 and 1995. We urge you to do your independent research to further understand this conflict, as it is still a very sensitive one. This is a talk with a genocide survivor. Discretion is advised. This podcast is dedicated to remarkable people with truly remarkable stories. Now, remarkable goes both ways. There are some remarkably good stories and also some remarkably terrifying ones. In some cases, we can have both. Now, with us today is one such individual. Thank you for honoring the show, Mr. Mursad Solakovic. Thank you very much for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Um, what's the weather like in Birmingham now? It's quite warm, but 20 degrees, so it's, it's pretty good. It's um, for English weather, it's good. <laughs> 20 degrees. 20 degrees, yeah. yeah that's good for summer. Yeah, that's 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 winter basically from this region of the world. I'm speaking, I'm speaking to you from Thailand. Have you been to, to Asia? No, no, never been to Thailand. I've I've had so many friends going there. Funnily enough, we mentioned it the other day that Thailand uh-huh. is the place. It's beautiful. Um, how did yeah. you end up going living there? Destiny. That's a short. That's long a short story. An, that's a short answer. And the long, <laughs> okay. the long, the long and short answer to that question. How long have you been living destiny. there? Uh, I am. I think I'm just under a decade now, eight years. Wow. Yeah. Eight years. So originally I'm from Manila originally, uh, and went out to Where's that? Manila is in the Philippines. It's the capital of the Philippines, Southeast Asia as well. Born and bred. Born and bred. Yes. Uh, the went, went to Thailand to, uh, just to find better, better opportunities. Uh, didn't, didn't expect to stay longer than a year and eight years after here we are so <laughs> i'd say usually happens but your english yeah. is really good um it's fairly common for people in the philippines to speak english it's a colony it used to be a colony of the united states so um right english has always been the the second language there um oh it's fantastic and it sounds american i like american accent mm. yeah it's just uh yeah it's the- it's just the influence as well. And it's, it's a very strong influence that they left, the footprint that the U.S. left in, in the Philippines. It's, it's not just the language, the culture as well, how they, you know, what kind of movies we, we patronize, the music. It's just, uh, it's, very, uh, it's very ingrained. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. Fantastic. I All love right. it. Yeah. So, um, well, Mr. Mr. Uh, Salakovich here has a story to share, and he also has a book. We're going to give him all the time to talk about that. Uh, just to give the audience a little bit of a preface, a context as to what this con- conversation is all about. When people ask you about your experience of living through a war as a very young child, what kind of questions do you wish people asked you more? You know, I'm pretty sure you've had you've had several talks about this experience that you've had uh, about, you know, growing up in, in a conflict zone and um, yeah, I've, I've seen some, uh, some of them and they've asked you several questions. Now, if you're given the chance to hand a piece of paper to these people who talk to you about this experience and the book that you have, for example, what kind of questions do you wish that these people had in that piece of paper? 
It's a very good question. I've never been asked this before, but um, nobody asked ever, ever how the war affected young people, children. Now, we have orphans that lost both of the parents during the war in Bosnia. And some of them um, have found new parents worldwide. Um, so they've been, um, they, so some of the children, for example, um, found refuge in UK. Some of them went to Italy and so on. Um, uh, the, the war impacts on children more than adults because, first of all, they don't understand the war. They don't understand the consequences of the war. They don't understand who starts the war, what makes the war, what, are, what the war implements, the death, the injuries, the mental scars. And, and, and the kids are caught in the middle. If you're lucky, unlucky, what side you fall into which side is winning, none of it makes sense. The only time when you get out of the war and you become a grown man, this is when it affects you more. I found going through all of that hell of experience, um, it was at the time you find a way to survive, but you haven't got time to the, digest any of those problems. Mm. But when you sit back, when you reflect, when all of these things, when it starts with the nightmares, then it goes into flashbacks, then you develop PTSD, then you develop bipolar, what have you, and then you realize um, lots of documentaries. I, I, I don't know one that somebody's gone around and interviewed mm. the kids that suffered during the war. And that, 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 that's, that's the probably question that I would like people to ask more, how the war affected the children, because the children are very innocent. Mm. They're innocent human beings. We are born naked. We are born with no information. We are born without culture. We are born without language. We, we're all the same. As young kids, we all the same. Then we all put that makeup and we addresses them exactly what we spoke earlier. Mm. The language in Philippines, the culture in Philippines, influence of America or in Bosnia, the culture, the European culture, the language, the history behind it and everything. And you get wrapped up in that blanket. But the difficulty is when that, you know, you, you keep everything away and you become segregated and this is when the danger develops, when, you know, people point the figure, don't talk to that person because he's this, don't talk to the person who's that. And I, I, I wanted in my life to break those barriers and, and, and raise my kids completely neutrally so they can centralise their own thinking and make such decisions, how they want to live, what they want to choose, what is good for them, and so on. I don't know if that answered your question it did. at all. 
It did. You, you, you made a good point when you said there's so many documentaries out there about all these conflict zones. And personally, I, I can only think of one that was, uh, now, now, now come to think about it, it wasn't even actually focused on the impact of a war on kids. Uh, I, I found a documentary um, called The Death in Gaza, and it's about the conflict in, in the Gaza Strip and how you know, these countries, there you go. Yeah, and the, how these countries are basically literally bulldozing their, uh, you know, the land and slowly yard by yard, inch by inch, you know, encroaching on soil of, on each other's territories. And that, that was a, it's a very graphic uh, a documentary. I don't think it's on YouTube anymore, but I was, a, that was a, a few years ago. And you just see the, the destruction and just how how unpredictable the environment is and just imagining raising a child in an environment like that and you see them blown apart and in bits and pieces it's just um it's horrible it's whole now thinking about it now i mean it um it does strike a note because i've been made a father recently i have a daughter as well congratulations <laughs> yes thank you i have a daughter as well and she turned 10 months recently and um when i see stories you know, such as the story that I found you, now it becomes more relatable to me because now I'm a father and, you know, now, now I'm raising uh, a child, especially now in this day and age when, the, when, this, when there's this pandemic that's going on around us, all you want is for your child to just be as far away as possible from all this, all this shit. And, um, you know, raising awareness you know, on, on how these kids lives have been affected, such as your, your life in the, in your own experience. Now, I've been trying to understand the conflict that happened in the Balkan region, which was, uh, which is Yugos, Yugoslavia. And, um, in my research, I found out recently that it's Yugoslavia as a state in itself has ceased to exist only in 2003 or something. So, um, just. I'm going to try to summarize what I've understood in the war in the Balkan region, and you can just correct me or, or add on to it. So what I understand is Yugoslavia used to be six countries, like something, something like Africa. So there's a, there, it's a, it's a landmass with six countries and the conflict ended, uh, started when, uh, the leader, uh, what, what's his name again? Tito is his last name. Marshal Tito. Marshal Tito, when he when he died, basically. Yeah, I would say six republics rather than countries. Okay, so six republics. Did everybody speaks the same language in Yugoslavia? Is, is that is that right? Not necessarily. Not all of them spoke the same language. No. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it's six republics Con so, constitute. Uh -huh. constituent republics that made up social federation of republic of yugoslavia so that's the full name of of that of that yeah, what, what the used six. to be that state yeah the six and yeah when this when this one person marshal tito passed away would it be the safe to assume that he held that place together all six of those constituent of course states? yeah mm -hmm. he, he, he passed in 1980 I was so, two years old when he passed away. I can even remember it. Yeah. So on TV, watching it. So he was basically the, the figure that held the whole state together. And the whole conflict started when 
you know, these, from what I understand, again, you can correct me at any time, for, the conflict started when these republics started to declare independence from each other. Yes. And uh, what was wrong with that? I mean, personally, from somebody who has very little knowledge and history of that conflict, apart from what I've done in the past week, what was so wrong about these republics declaring independence from each other? And how did it boil into a conflict? Serbia wanted to to keep Yugoslavia together when they've had a last meeting that all six republics still left the meeting, which angered them. They've had, as a larger state, they had in control the whole Yugoslavian army. And they've decided by attacking their own region mm. as Yugoslavia with the army, they would get control of the whole Yugoslavia turning into a great Serbia, but it didn't quite work out like mm, that. Okay. Um, they, you know, they, they've initiated, they wanted to keep Yugoslavia together. Or martial art, we have to remember that Marshal Tito's built the fourth largest army in Europe with all the artillery and air navy and the, 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 <laughs> the weapons were impeccable. He's, he, he had the planes built in caves, in mountains, that have literally um, had a pist inside the caves. They, they, they would develop the speed mm -hmm. uh, and momentum, and it would just take off and fly out of the massive mountain in, in minutes. At that time, back in the 90s, when Yugoslavia fell apart, all of his system fell apart, the, 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 the Serbia had most of the weapons in their control, mm. Air Navy, Royal Navy, and they, they attacked Slovenia first, which lasted for two weeks. Then they moved on to Croatia, which, which was quite a um, hard war. Then it spread to Bosnia. And as we know, 1995, they've attacked Kosovo. Uh, Kosovo has, has its own independence. Uh, the, the Bosnia was most affected by the war. It was the bloodiest war uh, as a consequence of the break of Yugoslavia. And there were most people died, over 300,000 people died from that war in Bosnia. So that's including Serbs, Bosnian Croats, including everybody. Mm. Over 100,000. Bosnian Muslim died during that war. So you have um, you have a Bosnian, you have a Bosnian Orthodox, Bosnian Catholic, and Bosnian Muslim who all lived in Bosnia. So my my family is a Bosnian Muslim family. Now we are a European Muslims, and we are leftovers, as they call us, from Ottoman Empire when they ruled. Some of us um, were forced into. Islam as a religion, not to be killed, and some of us transformed ourselves to be Muslim with a with, with a complete Christian culture and way of living. It's just like some people call us modern Muslims. We drink, we we have the same marriages as Christians. We eat the same food. Culture is pretty much the same, but we have a religion attached to it. But we weren't practicing, to be honest. We just 
pretty much had the Muslim thing. Adding to that, the Brotherhood of Communism held us all together because if you were loyal communist and you worked for the Tito, you weren't even able to have ceremonial religious funeral. So you, you, you would, the communists would be buried with a communist flag with no religion, no priest, no imam ceremony, uh, your burial. And um, that's the way it went. I said it many times. As a child, I feel proud that I knew they were, I had some kind of religion, but I thought we were all the same. They were, I didn't know even the name of the place where you go to. You, you've had all these people, we are Serbian, Croats, and, and I thought they go to same places to pray, but the buildings look differently. And, and, you know, those are the moments of Yugoslavia. People wanted... Tito was concentrated to make the Yugoslavia the greatest place probably in Europe. They made their own cars, aeroplanes, motorbikes, mm. you know, war fighting jets. He, the, the economy and the industry was so powerful and they were um, exporting everything to Asia, to Europe, everywhere. And um, the religion was something that nobody followed. We followed the, the communism was like a god. You know, to us, that that's how I've seen it. Mm. When just the, before the war came to our door, this is when we realised that you know um, who is who, that they are Serbs, that they are Croats, they are Bosnians. Some and and all of a sudden, the, the Serbs living in Bosnia, they follow Orthodox Church. They became bigger Serbs than the Serbs in Serbia. Then you got Catholics who were struggling with us Muslims, and you've got um, atheists. They were, they, they, they've had the biggest struggle because the, the system that they believed in, like I've had loads of family members, the system that, that built them and built the whole country, it turned against them. The same army that we used to buy thousands of thousands of dinners every month from our wages to, as Marshal Tita was signing, to make a country great, to defend itself, like that we always believe, and he made us a superior race, that we won the Germans, and that's what we celebrated during the Second World War. You know, we beaten the Germans, you know, and, and that's, and he says, you know, we'll always be prepared, whoever attacked us, we'll be um, a powerful force in Europe that will have an impact. But, the country turn on itself and, and start killing its own people. Now, we all look the same, Croats, Bosnian, and Serbs. We speak the same language. Kosovo spoke a different language. Slovenia spoke a different language. And that's it. And Montenegro spoke the same language. Serbia, Croatia, what's, Bosnia. What's the language? Spoke. Sorry, what's the language? Serbo-Croat. Serbo-Croat. Mm, okay. That's the first so time now, I've heard about that language. So now you have Serbian, because the country is separated to Serbia, mm -hmm. Croatia, it's called Croatia, Bosnia, Bosnian, Montenegro, they speak Serbian language, uh, Kosovo, they, they, they speak their own, and Macedonia, they speak their own language. Yeah, it's um, thinking about it as a child when I mentioned, and I've just realized just a couple of months ago, that all my life, 
as a child, and I use the phrase, my journey through the war as a 13-years-old child and how I survived. So nobody told me how to survive as a child, what I need to do to survive, and who do I ask? The war just kicked off. You think your parents are there to protect you. Mm. Unfortunately, they cannot do nothing. I never asked when I was tortured any of those soldiers to spare my life or not to kill me. And that just tells you how innocent mm. I was. I didn't even have common sense or fear probably kicked in to say, you, please don't kill me. I was like, I never used that. And I only discovered that after, you know, 28 years ago, you know, when it's, and that, that quite often, you know, worries me what the kids go through and how innocent they are. Mm. So, so I'm left with more questions <laughs> than, than answers with regards to the conflict. You know, maybe that, maybe it's just, um, maybe it's just one of those conflicts in the world that's just so convoluted in that it's, um, it's just really tough to understand. So anyways, uh, Yugoslavia now is, um, has a new name and, um, what I understand there were four wars that were fought and you are, so there were four wars from my research and you fell into, would that be the third war? 90, was it 92? 92 to 95, the, the Bosnian conflict, was it? Well, let, let's not get stuck with technicalities. Of, uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, of that's a good war, idea. Because when you have an audience and, and, and uh, uh, someone that might listen to this might get strongly affected. Oh, I understand, yeah. Make myself clear. I'd say the, the, the other side of Serbs. I've had some wonderful responses from the Serbian people. Equally, I've had some responses that, you know, I, I wouldn't be, you know, happy about, but cannot be responsible for those minority groups that commit um, genocide, atrocities, killings, murders, um, massacres. It happens in every war, and it's usually done by thugs or uneducated people, gangsters, mafia, whatever. But this is more complicated. But I want to, to elaborate, but also be transparent. The Yugoslavian army fell into the hands of dominantly Serbian people, and they had the biggest state. So they had artillery and army, and they attacked the whole Yugoslavia, wanted to keep it together. But the greatest idea was to rename it, call it Great Serbia. And, mm. and, and, and it's quite clear. Okay. So they've attacked. They attacked Slovenia, lasted for two weeks, couldn't do nothing, moved to Croatia. They've had some hard battles. They still fight in Croatia, then they turned to Bosnia. It was the bloodiest war, 95, the Kosovo, and then the America, United Nations bombed the Serbia. They, mm. They've stopped, Kosovo's got um, independence. You know, the, the, the Serbs would say, oh, the Serbia didn't attack Bosnia, didn't attack Croatia and stuff like that. But he was part of Yugoslavia. All the army were there. And what you'll have, the Croats would naturally run away from Yugoslavian army, fall into the hands of their own army. So did the, the Bosnians, did the same, and so on. So it was quite clear the army then left was purely Serbian army. 
mm. fighting everybody else that was different. And that's the experience that I had through the war. It's I haven't read it or researched it on Google. It's where clear mm. when the parents were trying to explain after the war what has happened to us and talk about my my parents talk about war every every day you know so all all those information is still quite vivid about them but then you've got people trying to disillusion some of the things that happened they they tried to wash out some of them would say let's forget about the past let's move move forward fair enough but let's establish what's right what's wrong what should we accept what not and what we should teach our children about and this is my main importance in life what should children understand about the war but without understanding the the background of a conflict which you um respectfully asked it's difficult to the audience to connect to my story and personal experience and mm. escape and all the experiences we um, acquired during the war. Okay. Okay. So um, why don't we talk a little bit about that experience that you've had firsthand? And you, you mentioned briefly that you were 13 at the time that this conflict happened. And to, to put it, to put it bluntly, you were, you were tortured at some point. You were held in a in a camp of some sort in in Bosnia. I just can't imagine, you know, being being in that type of situation, being being in that scenario. So how does that how did that work? I, it's 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 difficult. It's it's difficult to explain, and I think. If we had this conversation a week ago, I would have been more brave to speak in such a tone mm. with more heroic attachment to it. And I'll tell you why I don't feel, I feel aggravated in so many ways because I'm telling my story after 28 years and to the public domain to educate the world. And you still got these people after so many years that they live in denial. It's a story. And quite often when we tell the story, we humans, we connect. And it touched so many hearts when the juxtaposition, facial expression, the mannerisms of the truth that you've experienced just as a child. I didn't want to go into any structure of the war. I didn't want to blaming, playing blaming cards, anything. Just tell my story as it is. And I'll tell you the experience I've had with, and I keep going to the video because I'm upset by the recent comments and abuse that I've got of telling my story. It, it, it's the fact that you go out there and it takes a huge courage. And I prepare myself. I initially thought I will go in, will be brave, I'll tell my story without crying, without emotions, just as it was, because I was a child. But everything fell apart. Mm. And when everything falls apart, the emotions take over and then the truth comes out. And that's how I feel proud about it. But to step back from all of that and, and now tell you how it was to be tortured 
you don't need to be you don't need to get into the gory detail of that experience yeah. i'm sure it's it might i can only imagine how difficult it is for you maybe you can mm. you can just give uh g- give us an idea on how what the setup was like maybe from other sources like do you do you, do you know anyone else apart from yourself who went through this obviously you 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 should you must know other people who've gone through the same conflict relatives neighbor neighbors or friends no i don't know anyone that's been tortured huh. as a child i i i can i'll be i i'll be honest with you mm. um i know a mother same age as my mother that comes from a city called Banyaluka, not not far from us the same age she lost the same child they they they've um tortured the child and they've asked the same questions that i did and they killed the child and they killed the father and 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 i uh since i've heard that story it's pretty much i, I met this family here in about 1993 we, this is when i discovered how lucky we were as a family um let me try tackling this like from this angle, right? Because mm. it's, um, to be honest, it's not my best day um, for those reasons that I mentioned earlier. That's fine. That's get fine. Now, I would, I would start with saying a little bit about children. And people ask, why were you tortured? Why wasn't your father tortured? And it's very simple. Mm. The kids give out information. I was young, I was vulnerable. I didn't understand what was going on. And equally, you have to understand that I was 13 at the time. And before the war knocked out on our door, the local people in our town decided that we'll stand together to defend our homes. So women and children would be protected by ourselves so we would the territorial army was formed and anyone entering the town we would stop and that was the elderly family members amongst all of those people who were part of territorial army we're all our friends neighbors serbs as well as croats and all other different nationalities and we obviously within a couple of weeks we were beaten by the mighty Serbian army that consisted of Yugoslavian army. So um, they've attacked our town. They started shelling. Shelling lasted for over the week. And the territorial army, the troops moved in. And most of the people from the territorial army got killed, disarmed, and put into concentration camp. Some of them were still hiding. And the Serbian forces wanted information whereabouts the territorial army are, who supplied them with weapons, and so on. Now, this is when it gets complicated. Well, not complicated, but difficult. So um, I will tell you, because I was tortured twice, once in front of the house, and then when we ended up in a, in a concentration camp, to the Serbian Forces, Ratko Mladic, Radovan Karadzic, were the mastermind, the architects of the war. So 
they started bombing our town. And it lasted for over a week, then they stopped, then the ground troops moved in. When the ground troops moved in, this is when they start, they, they called it, they start processing people, interviewing people, taking people away. And it was the, the mastermind behind it was to kill anyone above the age of 18. So the concentration camps were already formed and there were four concentration camps in our area, Manyacha, Keratem, Omaska, and Ternopoli. Ternopoli was my school that was turned into concentration camp. So that's, that, 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 in essence, is how it all built to this stage where the army had to get their information. The adults were quite reluctant who were captured to give them such information. So they target children. It's very important to educate people how kids were targeted. And I will rewind the tape back a little for, for the sake of giving a little bit of background information. So the war started in May 1992 in our hometown, Kozarat. Prior to that, last week of, of our schooling, my school teacher came on with a full uniform with Kalashnikov. And he, he put the Kalashnikov on a desk and he was facing me. And he was one of my favorite teachers. I said, sir, why is the gun facing me? And why are you wearing the uniform? He just comes up to me in anger, huge anger. says, why do you think? Because I'm a Serb, I'm going to kill you. I didn't know he was a Serb. This Our surnames are the same. This happened yeah. while you were just, it was just like a, a regular school day and you were just having Thank a class. You. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. He was, yes. And it was the last week of a school. And uh -huh. that's the only question because you have Selakovic Serbian, you have a Selakovic Croatian. Selakovic, and we always call the teacher by his first name, by his surname. We never knew their first names. Probably like in, in, in every country, UK is the same, mm. regardless. So I wouldn't know whether he's a Serb, Croat, or, or, or Bosnian. It, it doesn't make any difference. So that's what angered him. He didn't have kids, and, you know, I was his favorite pupil. And um, things got nasty. So on my last day of school, my last day of school, I turn up home and I've had, so we finished school early. Instead of July, we finished in May because we had a school assembly and our headmaster said, look, we're going to finish school for our safety. The war is spreading out quick. We might turn up to our homes. Let's get through the war. We'll start here again in September. So I'm coming home, meeting my mother, and I've had these like a passport little box where you get all the grades. So I said to my mom, I've got all the grades, passed them with grade A. And um, she says, your, your dad's got your motorbike, a little scooter. It was, if I, my dad told me if I pass all the grades in grade A, like overall pass, you'll get a motorbike. So it was exciting. We just hugged each other, embraced. Within about a couple of minutes, the war siren went up. I asked my mom, what's this? He says, this is, the siren of war, 
I didn't know what war is. And mm. then you got people running around. <sighs> they don't know what doing. They're going from one side of the street to another, panicking, crying, shouting. Um, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, this is when um, they started um, the shelling. It lasted for a week. We went to the Serbian neighbour and, and, and we asked for help. She had a cellar. She took all of our village inside a house cellar and she said, I'm here to protect you. After a couple of days we stay there, all of a sudden they've used chain. She says, you must leave. I cannot guarantee anyone's safety here. So we went opposite neighbor who was a Bosnian family and um, we stayed there for a couple of weeks. Then we returned home. When we returned home, the ground troops started coming in and they would come in, they would interrogate us, they would humiliate us, they take our food away, they take our money, they take our machineries, the farming machineries, cars, everything. And one day, my dad said to me, listen, son, the war is a nasty game. And someone might come and ask you a question. If you knew anyone that was in total army, if you knew anyone that had weapons, if you knew anyone that supplied weapons, you don't know nothing. You must tell them you don't know nothing. You're a child. You played with toys. You went to school. You worked on farm. You don't know nothing about politics. You don't know nothing about anything. And I said, Dad, what about if they have to kill me? He says, well, it's better to kill you than the whole village. And I... <laughs> And I didn't understand that at the time. And I just, I was very, very obedient, loyal child, a quiet child. Mm. I was good at school, well-mannered and everything. Do you, do you remember what, what exactly was going through your mind when your dad was giving you this, this sort of briefing? Because it sounds to me that your dad knew what was coming, obviously, and that probably children are going to be targeted for interrogation, like you mentioned. What was going through your mind? I, I can only imagine if my dad spoke to me in that manner when I was that young. What oh, was shit. going through your mind? I was broken into pieces. And, you know, when it's like if somebody tells you you're going to die and you're just trying to think, well, I, I, how can I fix this? A quick fix so I don't have to die. And you almost feel like I'm envisaging now bricks and the way they put together, to all together. I was those bricks for somebody's blowing them apart. But what he was saying, I felt that immense tension. I I felt that people turn against each other so quickly. And what I've learned as a child that you blame anyone to survive, mm. you know, you, but for your own, and one of the things is, just, I was like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a child, man. He said, well, they don't know what's in your head. So that, and, and do not look at the, the, the one thing that's stuck in my head. Do not look at the soldiers in their eyes. Mm. But you do that sometimes. You, uh, you, you glance to get that pity of them to, to have this sympathy, but they don't. Um, and, and again, 
you know, um, within half an hour, there's this military van that came in and, and I was already familiar with the uniform that was green, camouflage, army. But when you see the blue one, you can tell these guys are not to mess about, a special mm. police force. And it was a warm summer. I was in my shorts and little vest and skinny little body. And um, I was outside. When I seen the van, these soldiers were coming out fully armed. And he didn't even stop. They, they're getting out of the vehicle. I thought it's nasty. With six soldiers. Um, and they started asking questions, everybody out of the house. So we had 27 family members. We had people coming when the shelling started, our family members and friends started coming from surrounded villages and they all lived in our house. And they were all outside. They've asked my mom for jewelry, money, everyday thing that they were coming and asking. So they give them what they've had. We had to take the wheat that were hidden in the fields. So wheat would be turned into flowers. So we can feed the family. We had to load that into the van. And um, I, I, I remember, you know, they were asking questions about my dad. He said, look, I've never been conscripted to the army. You show them. He's had a cut, he had a heart operation, um, a disabled person. Um, you know, I, I haven't been involved into anything. Mm. And this is, I remember the guy, there was, you know, there was a, two of the guys, they've had sunglasses and um, one of the point me says, you, you need to come with us. And I, at first, I've pretended that I didn't hear it. And, and then he, he, he comes back from me, grabs me and uh, come with me so all the times these people are pointing weapons when they walk towards you the the, the fingers on the trigger um the first thing you hear the howling and crying of my mother saying they're gonna kill my child um now there were two houses and there's a street in front of those two houses and then you've got a massive bush that kind of shields the houses so i was put behind those um, massive um bushes wild bushes um opposite the street and this is when questioning started and torture my dad was asked to serve him a traditional shlivovitz drink which was um well known and he brings everybody together and I, I, you know, I initially thought it's a good sign. It's a good start. But the problem they had, the more drink they had, the nastier they became. Mm. And um, this is, you know, they brought my dad straight away. And this is, um, ask your dad for help. I says, dad, can you help me? And, and he was in front of me, about 10 meters away. And he said, down he says i can't help you so he, he hits me with a rifle but again he says look at your dad he's a coward he can't help you you're going to get so he says dad can you please help me he says i i can't help you. and then he says ask your dad again he says that these guys are going to kill me can you help me he says i can't help you um that itself does does three times 
forced us mother for help you. who would come up with that it's so this destroyed so low that it's it's it, it, it was unbearable because you always think in films even discussions that I had with my dad I always thought I'd jump in and save my child but he's worked out and he said the more he responded to what they were doing the more he got angry they they would have more reasons to to kill me to mm. and and my life so he he played it he played it down mm. and he was he was a, the his strategy that he decided that he, i've got to play it down you know he didn't even ask don't don't, <laughs> don't kill the child kill me you know some some you know some people would say that he just kept quiet they took him away and then they put me in execution spot now to put a child in execution spot it's it's crazy man mm. i have my two years old son and i'm thinking if somebody knocked on the door and just with a gun and just scared him to kill him i would have great difficulties and i can't even imagine what my father went through um did you ever ask because, him no you know i said the other day that 27 family members witnessed it no one ever asked me what happened that day and what happened in the concentration camp i think purely out of respect mm. they didn't want to upset me the other day things were quite about some things and he just come out saying to his friend in front of me to justify himself probably for me not to have hard feelings about it saying maybe my child will never understand how why I responded in 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 that way but if i did anything to respond what they were doing with anger we both would have been killed or maybe the, the entire family because they were looking for that offset so oh mm. now we see you know now you'll get it um the it, to put child in execution spot this is where you want to kill you honestly at that time did did i know if you get shot in in a leg that you're not going to die straight away or if you're going to get shot in in the heart that you instantly die it's, it's, it's honestly as a kid you wouldn't comprehend that so i um the soldier asked me where do you want to be shot and keep him quiet so this time i thought i'm going to cut off because dad's not helping me i'm quite he's told me that, to keep quiet and it's just Do you want to be killed in a heart? And I kept quiet. I said, Do you want to be killed in, in, in your stomach? I'll be shot in the stomach. I'm keeping quiet. 
Sind die, ähm, die ähm, shot, the first time the shot has gone above my head, and I heard my mom saying, oh, they just killed my child. I'll never forget that. Never forget that sentence. And, and her howling noise was distraught. It was raping my heart apart. And I, I was told later on, the uncle put um, a cloth in her mouth to stop her making a noise because he, he was upsetting the soldiers. Mm. Then the um, second bullet went to um, the left side of me and I've heard the rabbit running away from the bush. Okay. And that, 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 is, that, is, that is bizarre. That you know, you, you have animals, the birds singing and stuff. When the soldiers come, you hear birds running away. And that, during the war, you become so sensitive to the noise and environment. Um, and in a third bullet, they, they, um, they put my dad to watch it. And what dad had said that, uh, one of the soldiers that was just I was told recently it was, the, the barrel was knocked and it just missed my head hmm. and then you've got um, a next door uncle's house and you've got um, his daughter comes out she was 15 she's very brave she says why did you name that to a child she, she, she just she, said that. Oh, my God. Yeah, she said that. <laughs> she, uh, he's, he, what, what's he done to you? What's a child done to you? They looked at it. Oh, he says, you want to get it? And then what made it worse? It's mimicking her, looking at her. Man. Get up. Get, get the hell out of here, man. Get, get out. Man. Mm. She was brave. And then auntie turns up, takes her hand and takes her away. When I describe a difficult moment, that was a difficult moment. And, you know, you, I was convinced I'm going to get killed. And you're always thinking, just do it, man. It's getting tiring and hard. And then she's been taken away. Her auntie took it away, saved them, and there's nobody to save me. At that point, dad's gone. And that's when the teacher takes, he comes forward, takes the grenade, and he says, you hold on to this, like your life depends on it. Then he takes another one, puts it in my hand now. He says, you must have had these before. I've never seen them. I don't know what they're like. I don't know about safety pin or anything. They let you he hold says, two grenades in your hands. Yeah. I... As a child, I don't know what activated or, or, or if they ever activated or not. But then I was holding it. He says, hold it tight. Like your life depends on it. And they stood back away from me. Um, this is exactly the same place where they put me in execution spices. If you let this call, you'll you, you blow yourself. And I, 
I, I, I never knew, you know, I never knew these things. When you watch, we watch parties on films, I thought once you throw the grenade, he activates itself. But when they take the pin out, that's it. You let go, there's that handle and he blows. The only when this guy comes in, the teacher to put some back in, I've seen the way he was constructing to put the pin back in. I thought, fuck, these were, they, they, they were always activated. But honestly, just holding him the way you hold, I was shaking and, and, and I was sweating. <laughs> I, 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 sweating buckets. I've seen, I've seen the, the video from, from YouTube. I've seen you talk about the same subject matter, but hearing it from you, talking, talking to you like you and I are face to face, it's an, it's an, it's different fucking level i'm you know i'm i'm struggling as well you must have yeah so so how does this how does this whole thing they uh, beating then yeah they they've they've taken them back um at this point these guys are uh, they've had a fair amount of drink um but i i don't you know that i i some people say look you know soldiers were drunk but doing that kind of stuff man i wouldn't make it as an excuse they had they had a couple of drinks to be brave to do that to the child I think. because i don't know how any anyone with any sanity would, would go up to that extent mm. um and what what did they get out of is that heroic thing to do <laughs> they, they must be grown men now and I don't think all of them are alive. I don't know. It's, 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 it, it's, I, I like to ask those questions then as a grown man, but that's another subject. So then the guy, one of the guys took the knife. He feels all, they all had their turn on torturing me. And he caught on the left side of my forearm across and then he took a cross on my chest. Then was bleeding, they had a buckle of army bell that were hitting my back, the ruffle bell, it broke my head, I still got a scarf back up there. Some bleeding at this point from my nose, from my mouth, from the back of the head, from back in everywhere. And um, I naturally, I, I, I fell in, um, in that ditch and it was like a pond of blood. And one of them kicked me with the boot and says, we're coming back to kill you. And that sentence still haunts me. And it took a little while for my family to check out if I'm alive. They just wanted to make sure that the soldiers were left out the scene and they weren't sure if I still had the hand grenade in my hands and all sorts of things. It's, I remember that moment, a long moment. It's like waiting them to fire the bullet when it was execution spot in the same way for parents to just you know, peep out to see if I'm alive. That, you know, when the father and mother, when they embraced me, it was um, to feel I was reborn again. Mm. So that was the most difficult moment in my life. Mm. Does it help every time that you're asked to, to talk about this story? Does it get easier for you to talk about it? It kills it me more, you? my friend. Mm. It kills me more, my friend. Every time these conversations, they um, takes. I, I I said they take 
so many days hurts on my life. Mm. Um, it's difficult. It, it drains you. I'll have, you know, I'll, I'll have um, night for the rest of the week. Yeah, Still. Mm. It brings up the bad memories. Mm. I, I, I quite often, you know, I hide all of these bad feelings by, by smiling and by covering it up with the jokes and stuff. Mm. And that day, the, when the siren went off, when I came from school, I've lost my childhood at the age of 13. I never lived as a child anymore. Never. Mm. And what I tend to do, I go in a child mode, I lift a lot of weights, and that's where my childhood continues. Mm. I lift weights and I have a group of lads where we joke about, where we take piss out of each other, where we, mm. you know, verbally, you know, take out on each other, you know, it's just a bit silliness. And uh, I'm probably the biggest child out of all of them. And I'm the eldest. And I always say I lost my childhood as a child. This is the mm. making up time. And I like to make people laugh in a gym. I'm known as a joker. But when these lads seen some uh, the footage, they couldn't believe it. You, you, you know, the nicest, happiest person on the planet, but you never know what people experience and what mm. they meet. That's why it's important to to always be nice to anybody you meet, because you don't know that they're having all these these struggles, these battles that they have on their minds, in their hearts, that they carry around all day. Um, so what what I really wanted to get out of this talk, and I cannot thank you enough for for going through that again and having to go into that detail of telling this that story again is the way that you were able to move past that, if you can even call it that, and how you were able to pick up the pieces and now enjoy the life and the stability that you are having. So you, you made your way out of, out of that conflict zone to relative safety. Uh, my research says you made it to Croatia. Yes. How, how was that? What was the journey like from from being held in, in, in that camp and, and making your way out of, out of that conflict zone into safety. The Serbs would, would, would um, they would describe that it was a collection center, this gathering center. Mm -hmm. Even today, they, they wouldn't admit it was a concentration camp. So we were this gathering center. We need to be processed and questioned. And then we'll be, released to the Bosnian territory, but we were ethnically cleansed. Um, I'm still got like scars on my head. It's still on the beach. And we were put in um, concentration camp. That was a social club next to the school. And that school, you've got images of that school with a skinny man, mm. skinny man yeah. with a barbed wire. So it's also known as school when we were there. How long um, were you held there for? About five, six nights. Okay. And you were, were you provided for at least? Did you have the basic necessities of what a human mm. being might need to survive? Food, no. Water? No. No. The men were separated from women. Women and children, elderly and disabled people were together. My dad was disabled because of a heart operation. So he mm. stayed with us. On top of the social club, we were put upstairs. 
every night they would take soldier would come in, kick the, the door and take underage girls, 15, 16, and they would rape them. And we'd hear the noises of, you know, the, the young girls. The rape, they would be thrown back in and you can't go to the toilet because you'd get the beating. So I couldn't hold it anymore. After four days, I went to the toilet, I had a diarrhea. And you just crouch down in front of everyone. And you just, um, you know, um, you that's, that's the there. toilet facility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, one of the soldiers spotted me and he says, he says you, you need to come over here. So they took me to the, it was a medical room for us as kids, right? And this is where the beating was. I, when I went inside, all the walls were plastered with blood. I thought, shit, I'm going to get another beating here. And there was a guy smoking. Um, and he says, you, you, you've, um, are you that child that, you were questioned the other day at your home and I just kept quiet. Um, he was smoking I, uh, from the smoke, the amount of smoke inside that room, smoke and blood. That's all I remember. And there's a desk and a chair. And he says, you must have done something wrong because you've been squared quite a lot. And I'm thinking, oh, what could I have done wrong? Hmm. So they've beaten me up with, um, rubber truncheon on my back on mm. my head everywhere but um i was lucky they just just clear off and on the way out to see my dad selling cigarettes and i've heard people saying look at him he's selling cigarettes we're trying to survive it. later on my dad said he went that side as well to the toilet and um one of the guards spotted him and he says do you need to sell these cigarettes if you don't sell the packet of cigarettes you'll be killed Hmm. So he um, he's begged his friend to give him whatever they have to contribute towards him getting some money and, and surviving. So he did. So then they've had animal carriages. At the, 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 the train station was right next to the school. Tenopolia uh, train station. It's called Tenopolia. That's the area of the village called Tenopolia. So we're, we were put in animal carriages or we were transported to Gratchenica. One of the things also that I remember my my mother trying to to persuade me not to look, and I had to look. So we'll come to the bridge, and I thought we're all going to be thrown off the bridge, massive bridge in Gratchenica, where apparently we learned later on they was controlled by the Bosnian people that were in the wheelchairs. There was no wheelchair access and people could not carry them. Soldiers would never carry them. They forced family members to throw him off the bridge. Fuck. So you've, had, you've had a child, you had um, a husband or somebody that's got no legs or they couldn't walk or complete, just throw him off the bridge. And you well, hear that. Mm-hmm. Well, for, for what purpose, apart from the whole cleansing, was it to make space for some reason? Or was it they just... couldn't walk? So who's mm. gonna carry them? Who's gonna push the chairs? You can't push the chairs. You're mm. gonna come off the bridge, and you, you there's no there's like a, there's no access for the wheelchairs or anything. See, man, and I heard the woman. I can't push my child, and, and and then they push the woman and the child, and the noise they make when they fall down, man, instantly oh. dead. 
And then they put us in a tunnel. So I thought they usually kill people in a tunnel. He says, you walk the other side of a tunnel and that's your army. We didn't believe it. We stayed in the middle of a tunnel thinking whatever happens now. Sometimes they run over with tanks. So we were just preparing ourselves for the worst. And before you know it, the Bosnian army came and says, don't worry, we're not. We're on your side. Um, we're going to help you. So we walked. It was a long walk to get to say, mm. I never forget that. The women of that territory, Gracinica, Doboy Gracinica, they, they took the food out, the bread and water. I haven't ate for um, four or five days. There has been left with no food because we had a bit of bread. Mom would give us little pebbles of bread just to survive. But we had a three years old baby, my younger brother and 15 years old sister. Mm. And they were trying to concentrate on the baby. Maybe my baby brother could have enough bread to get him through it. So we got a little bit. And I drank a bottle of uh, a liter and a half water in one gulp. Never forget that. To ask soldiers for anything, you never do that. Mm. And uh, eventually we stayed overnight in school in Gracinica. It's, it's a Bosnian territory. And then the local villages that took us to live in their homes. But soon, um, I was um, I volunteered to work on different farmers to get wheat so we can fill the family. But after about five, six weeks, the families were saying, you, you need to leave because the winter's around the corner. We haven't got the food. It's kicking off badly here. The Serbian forces might take over this time as well. You'd mm. have to leave. And I remember our faces dropping on the floor. We have to leave again. So my father organized a lorry that would take about 10 families in, in, in a lorry. And uh, we would be driven over the mountains, usually through no man's land. And quite often they'd have booby trap. They would drive the night, daytime, we would shield in a forest. And it was so overcrowded with people. And... Um, you had no breathing space. I was at the back of the trail of the lorry. Um, my legs were hanging outside. I was holding tight to the frame of the vehicle. We, we were like sausages put together. Um, I um, remember we were going through Carnit and it was heavy shelling. We just had to cross this town to get to the Herzegovina part of Bosnia. Uh, so there's Bosnia and Herzegovina. So it's a lower part of Bosnia. And um, the Serbs start shelling. So we had just a mortar falling maybe 20 metres from us, but the the magnetic altitude and, 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 and the way it shakes up the ground, um, all my face was covered with that dust. Mm. And my mom and dad are saying, oh, mess has been taken off. Couldn't even see me how... Um, covered with dust I was and I was just hanging out there I'm like, I, when I opened my eyes all you could see my eyes was black with dust and I survived that as well the, 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 so the shelling it's um, that that grenade falling I, and I, I haven't heard it coming I've heard it when it um, exploded and that that's the weirdest thing because you, you feel like you're into a dream and it's something you know, and really just that's when you feel and the impact on the earth, it just shakes everything around, all of that altitude around you. And you are in, um, 
state of um, shock with um, it's like a coma. And people become so vulnerable and, and disorientated that it's you, you, I, I, I said it many times, it, it becomes the game, the game of death. And you have to learn how to survive the game of death. And that, that, that's hard because it's you, you have learned in a war, do not trust anyone. Do not trust, do not tell no one. No, the silence is your best weapon, the silence. And that's how I survived all the way. So we managed to escape to Konyut and we reached a place called Posushi, where it was a, a refugee camp. Um, it was in Herzegovina, part of Bosnia. We had some parcel foods, but you have to fight for it. It's, it gets thrown at you and then you have to, you, you, you literally have to jump in the air and grab it. And whilst you're landing there, you usually knock somebody out with your, mm. with your hand. And the kids were, we, we would jump, we would climb on top of our parents' shoulders when somebody, the lorry comes with the, with the food because it was never enough. So they've come up with a strategy, just throw at them like animals and then whoever gets it, gets it. So I always made sure that disabled people, people that couldn't get anything, they get something. Um, and I was good at jumping off my dad's shoulders and a couple of my friends and Getting, getting the food that were sardine things, beans, beans um, tuna, beef, um, beef steak beans and stuff like that. Um, and then we were running out of food there, so I decided that he'd organize the whole new party when we reached Croatia, auntie. Um, and then um, on the way to Croatia, the army would keep stopping during different parts of Bosnia and try to take people out to take him to the fighting zone, to to the front line. And I remember two lads been taken off. The mother says they were thirteen, but they looked sixteen. And anyone sixteen had taken them on. So I remember when they took the sons out, she was holding them. They were like twins. My mom hidden me underneath her skirt because I was quite big for thirteen years old. Um, and I remember the woman saying, that's not fair. You're hiding your child and they're taking your child. I remember them kind of whispering at each other. The, the woman was literally telling my mom off. Mm. And I was shaking underneath my mom's skirt. When the woman went outside, she tried to save her sons. But I remember her crying, coming back. She cried all the way to Croatia. Never seen her again. Never Croatia, we stayed with our auntie. Um, and then um, mom and dad had a friend that they would get a food parcels from Croatia, from a mosque. There was a mosque in Croatia where they distributed the, the food parcels for refugees. And um, my dad had a, a friend called Sami. There's a lot of um, Arabs that lived in Bosnia during the Yugoslavia. The 1970s, 80s, they all came to study medicine. And um, he, Sammy, suggested to my dad that I should, um, that we should strongly go to UK 
and um, he was aware, and a lot of people in my town were aware of what I've been through, and and a lot of people call me a, a child hero. That we, I saved the whole village by not giving the army any information. And he says, "You you you should take your child. You'll probably get the best treatment there." As as um, I got out of the war zone, that's when I started having bad dreams and turning to flashbacks and stuff. So my um, auntie, my dad's sister, who lived in Croatia most of her life, she was trying to persuade that that we should go and um, start a life in UK or at least try to live there for six months, save a bit of money. And when the war stopped, we could always come back and we'll have some money to rebuild our house and rebuild our lives. And then um, auntie came with, um, with uh, an idea that she says the war is raging. It's going to get worse before it gets better. This is uh, in two years' time. Mirsad is he'll be 14 in September. Two years' time, he'll be 16, he'll be conscripted to army. And um, he, he'd have to go to army. And, and, and considering what, it, what, what he's been through, mm. that's the worst thing that could happen to him. So you need to get him out. And, and, and those words have finally helped out to make his mind up to get us out of that conflict zone. Um, the two coaches... Um, funded by UK government, were set up um, by a charity called Human Appeal. They came and um, they took us, um, they came to Croatia, two coaches, they picked us up and they took us to UK. Mm. So it was September in 1990 to UK. Uh, wow, what a, what, a, what a story indeed to tell. And um, a, a huge chunk of, of the remainder of your story is obviously found in a book that you, you've authored. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about that book and um, your final thoughts on what kind of message you would want to bring out coming in from a person who has lived this experience of, of war and of terrible, this terrible suffering. Uh, your book is called The Boy Who Didn't Say Anything. Is that right? The Boy Who Didn't Say Nothing. The Boy Who Didn't Say Nothing, yes. And uh, this book is all about, it's, it's more of your autobiography, is that correct? Would you tell us a little bit about that and um, uh, where, where it can be found and um, how, how, how it can be available for other people who might want to know the rest of your story? Yeah, I think uh, I will start um, saying mm. why the book, why the writing and the book was important for me. I, when we landed in UK, I was silenced. I didn't speak for two years until I was fifteen. Mm. So, from thirteen um, to literally. When I was 16, I started to talk. I didn't talk in a mother tongue, and I didn't talk in English. So I accumulated lots of information. I was a good listener. And I made lots of notes. I, um, in a class, I would, I would put the words in, but I didn't understand in English and so on. One of my 
main reasons what I wanted to write the book was to change the perception about the refugees around the world. Equally, I wanted to educate young people how children suffer during the war and conflict and how they become the worst victims from the war. Quite often that side of the war is hidden from mainstream people because humanity embarrasses itself how mm. barbaric some people can be towards children. And when the book came out, it completely changed my life. Now I've been blessed with two books. So I wrote the poetry book as well. Um, under the same title, The Boy, Boy Who Said Nothing, poetry book. Uh, poetry from The Boy Who Said Nothing. Both books have given me a huge flat platform for the story to become alive and people to learn how the war affects young children. Mm. I feel personally, if something's not written through the formality of words over the years, it changes the meaning as memories fade away slowly and I might not be around. Then somebody else tells my story and that story will change. And at some point that story won't even be true then. Mm. So whatever you record it through words, people will read it, remember it, and it, the truth will be found eventually. And, and then uh, the history um, hopefully won't repeat itself. Mm. Um, now, putting all of this together, I, at very early stages in life, I'm talking about the book now, I have realized that in life, I was constantly picked on. I was constantly beaten up. The bullying, because I didn't speak when we were put even in the mosque in Birmingham where we stayed. The kids straight away picked on it. They stopped bullying me, beating me up, urinating on me. And I was, I was quiet. And then I found smiles. So when they start beating me up, I'd smile at them. It was my... The smile became, it lasted for good decades. And it was a survival tool for me, even as a, as a young, grown adult going through education, everything. I used to smile at people it was, when I was nervous or when I was angry. It was a defense force put in place. It was a plain front. Then I realized that um, one of the things that intrigued me was um, one of the early days at, at the mosque, and it's picking up little information from the book, um, why the book is important for someone that probably loses direction or children that haven't got any direction, is then when the doctor goes around, checks everyone, and it's a procedure for refugees. He's a very nice doctor, in fact. An oldish guy, bold, and I observed him quite clearly. And I... I was quite reluctant to go and see him. So I was last. I wanted everybody to go away. So he's checked me. First thing he was asking my mom about his scars. And she's, you know, through the interpreter, she's tried to explain. I think in my eyes, he's seen I was a dead man walking. There's no even life in my eyes. He, he says, you know, this child suffer with PTSD. This is a great difficulties to interpret that word. My mom had never heard it before. What's that? 
mm. how it's winning. He's, he's basically all his brain is overwhelmed with, with the past and he's trying to fight it. Then, then the current world is attacking him. He's not fitting in. And then he's he's fighting with himself, but he's fighting the world to accept him. And, and he keeps going back to people that hurt him in the past. And um, she, the doctor said, he will never be a normal child. He won't be able to follow education. He won't be able to have a stable job or start his own family. That really, um, something changed in me when I've heard that, thinking, that's not fair, man. I've been tortured in the school back home. I've been tortured again in the concentration camp. Then I've been bullied here and saying all of these things, none of it's my fault. And then I, at such age, was already turning forward in thinking, well, I'm good at something. And I'm mm. better than anyone else. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm good at receiving pain. And I can use that to my advantage. But how do you, you use that to your advantage, receiving pain? Who can go through what I've been through and be normal? So then I decided, let the kids do what they do and hopefully they'll stop. But it didn't quite work out like that at the beginning because the kids in school, it was horrendous. So I, I dreaded it going to school. But then the parents had to uh, register me with this mental institution. My mom was concerned that they would take me away. In Bosnia, when somebody is mentally ill, they take him away and you lose the child. So she always worried about that. So when people question her why there's any tool, she said he's quiet, he's, she's hidden it really well. Until one day I had these um, really bad dreams where I used to smash the windows and the, the room was sleeping. I wet myself. But quite often it was normal to wet. But we had two families living with us. So um, this woman that lived in us in our house, so we were given accommodation as refugees and quite often they put two families in one house. He, she got up and she seen the more my hands were blood and I smashed everything up and she was scared. So what did he do? Um, and he said, he just had a bad dream. And then my mom would tie me in the bed so I don't smash things. Hmm. Um, and... and um, and the same woman, following day, they were sitting down and there was another woman came. And she said, the woman inside the house and I was in a hallway. I heard her saying, oh, they've got mentally ill child. They just smashed the whole room upstairs and he would never be able to go through education or learn English or speak or have his own kids. That really set me off that I can do something. I listen to these people. I think they are so unfair. I wanted to, three things that I wanted to implement in my book, what I've been through. It's probably second, second half of the book where I talk about I wanted to build a wall and I imagined the wall all around me, a brick wall. So I wanted three to master three things in life to become the best at. One is to build immense strength. So no one, 
still ever physically hurt me. No one started lifting weight. The second thing, I wanted to educate myself because people say I can't not get education. I'd get the education that nobody can deny. And thirdly, I want to earn as much money as I can so I get stability and status with it. Mm-hmm. Because of the huge, the, 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 the past, the torture, the bad experience I've had, it was the tool to turn them into positive experiences with that sheer concentration, discipline, and courage. I would weight train for three, four hours, sweat buckets, and I won't make nothing out of it. Tomorrow will be the same. Mm. When I started um, getting education, I'd study till two or three o'clock in the morning, get up at seven, and a strong routine, as disciplined, as mentally prepared for it and I was disciplined I wouldn't say I'm the most intelligent person and those three things I mastered I mean I call me Bruce Lee within a one year of weight training I come from a bodybuilding family so that was I've had genes in me in terms of education I started talking in this school assembly about my experiences that's my first public speech and all the bullies they've had sympathy for me so the first time I felt compassion and they allowed me to get education they stopped pulling me so started as well as getting education weight training clubs so I became popular um, and I got eight GCCs with grades A and C I gone to A levels so past three A levels and I followed drama because I was advised the way the best way to learn English to do um, Drama education, so did A levels in drama. Um, went to Coventry University, did theatre studies. Then went on to the master's degree, specialised in acting. And then I spent two years to get a teaching education to become a teacher. Mm. I bought my first house when I was nineteen. I um, have a portfolio of houses that I have now, and um, I'm entrepreneur. I, I set up. Um, charity in Bosnia called United Citizens. It's all in the book. I wanted to celebrate our differences and look at each other's similarities rather than our small differences. And I wanted all these Serbian Croats and Bosnian kids to, to unite together through the sport. And I always had a mission statement, um, healthy minds, keep your healthy minds or keep your healthy bodies. And um, I accumulated the building. We bought the third, me and my dad bought the third floor of the shopping center. And we set it all as a fitness center. So we got a martial arts room. We got a weight training room. We got a fitness room. We got a studio. So, um, yeah. Um, and then I also went to the school. And... Um, the same school, I um, donated computers. Mm. I, um, I changed the windows in the school t- two years ago now. The school seemed to know everything that has happened. They never questioned it. But one of my early stages, um, I politely asked, do you know it's, um, a particular person? And when someone says, um, we don't know where he's about, just 
tells you everything about those people. And, and, and I would say, until the other day, the abuse of God, but it's not abuse from the Serbs from my town, it's the Serbs from the Serbia, uh, which is, again, we are saying another country. Um, they really respect what I've been through without anyone asking me what I've been through. And I have that huge respect when I walk in that fitness center, United Citizens, it's like that kid's been through a lot, but he's come out really well. Mm. And he's a role model for our community, for for the for the people of all different nationalities and stuff. Um, so I wanted to inspire young people that despite that everything gets thrown at you at such a young age, you can overcome by being brave and independent. I've realized that all my success, I have to purely on myself. I very rarely I would ask for help. Um, I like people to join me and I want to be a role model. Hmm. We have a, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just like, uh, you mentioned that you, you were able to procure your first house at 19. And when just a few minutes ago, we were talking about that harrowing experience you had in the war to be able to pick up your, to pick up all the pieces after, after that time and to just spend less than a decade and to where you are now, obviously where you are in your life, it's truly, truly remarkable and testament to just the will that you were able to find. I mean, not a lot of people, you know, would, would be able to walk away from what happened to you, much less thrive from the experience. And this is what this, this platform that I have is all about. It's all, it's dedicated to remarkable people with remarkable stories and your message of being a role model, I think is, uh, I think you're living up to it day by day. You know, I'm pretty sure that you've affected a, a lot of people's lives as well with the, with your work now and uh, what you're doing with the community and these enterprises that you run with your life. Yeah. Uh, wh where can we find the books that you have? I've checked, uh, I checked Amazon the other day because I had the intention of ordering a hard copy and then maybe sending it to you to be autographed. But it's, yeah, uh, yeah it's, uh, I need to check again because probably the link that I checked out, it said it was out of stock, which is probably good. So you're definitely... It's been out of stock <laughs> since <laughs> the last Bible um, As it, yeah. came out. So yeah, yeah it, it, it makes my day, it makes my day. Yeah, yeah so but, that's a good sign. I was like, oh, okay, that's a good sign. It's, it's obviously flying off the shelves. And, um, you know, about this whole thing that you mentioned before we, we started the podcast, um, you know, they say no, no press is, what, what's, the, what's, this, what's the word again? <laughs> All press is good press. But yeah, it's, uh, I, I can understand how it can affect people. For, for me, personally, I think if you have people who, who oppose you, it's always a good sign that you are you're shaking things up and um well obviously to your detriment at some point but when you when you experience opposition especially in life when you experience opposition you know what they say when everything's going your way you're in the wrong lane <laughs> so i think these are good signs you know for for people and obviously for for this journey that you're under still undertaking at the at this point um do but you have yeah go ahead I love it the way you've you've summarized the end. Um, 
always shaking things up and mm-hmm. yeah um we have um where we've come from we are northwest of bosnia so we live on top of the country so for centuries they call us angry northerners so all the um, empires used to attack from the top of the country like imagine uk scotland always used to attack from scotland from the top the vikings the dutchies the um they always attacked great britain from the top and, and one of the greatest warriors would always come from north and they call us angry northerners, even though we always display the smile. The smile is like to say, well, we are fine. We are good. We are soft. <laughs> and instead, you've got the line that you cross. And if you cross the line, when the smile disappears, then it's trouble. There's no words, mm-hmm. just action. Mm-hmm. But we have the word of honor. And probably in Europe, the eldest tribal people, there's two tribes that still kind of coexist and um, are very well-known. And, and um, the Albanians, and they have a word of honor called Bessa. So when they give you the word of honor, it's like a promise. It's mm. like, I, I got you. You got my back. Job's going to get done. And we have um, a paragraph that says, um, say what you do, do what you say, and there's no other way. Mm. And I, I end the, the book like that, and it's... Um, when I go to any part of Bosnia, when I speak the dialect, this is angry northern, and I smile at them. But the perception is the tough people. It's I don't think they're tough. They're just brave. If we think that somebody, you know, is breaking the justice in the world, we um, you we don't surrender. You know, um, and, and this is it's quite often been said by the Serbs. They they were so scared of us, and that's why they, as they say, they told up so much with artillery mm. and army to scare us and form the concentration camp so we never come out of it alive. And even though the ones that come alive, they would never go to um, the front line to fight. And it was opposite. Every single person that survived the concentration camp went on the front line. Mm. But we never massacred civilians, women, and children. And none of, none of the people, especially from concentration camp, didn't go there and kill innocent and tortured women and children. And I see a soldier killing a soldier on, on, um, on a front line. I have a lot of relatives. It's no problem. It's just I, I, I admire and I have a lot of respect for Serbs on the other side because they want to survive. They, they fight him for what they think is right. But I'm not fighting. I'm defending my country that's been attacked. And now I, I was a harp farmer before that never hurt anyone. I got, got out of concentration camp. I fought for my country proudly, and I'll do it again. And mm. it's a beautiful way of saying it. Um, but I, I also the thing that people know about me, I'm, I'm known as Mickey as a child, and I, I, I didn't like that name. Anything to do with my childhood, I, I kind of wanted to not to be affiliated with so a couple of friends irish friends picked up on that mickey and it's a typical irish mm. um name nickname um they've started calling me mickey and i allow them because they are good people and the accent sometimes they think um i'm um, irish but 
and very the children from war are very sensitive to their families. Anyone to hurt my family now, they get in trouble. I don't tolerate. Whether somebody's with a knife outside with a gun, I'll just jump in front of them. Hmm. And I'm, I've done 17 years in Birmingham, um, 17 years, and everybody knows me at the nightclubs, and I don't fearless animal. Not that I describe myself like that, it, it's the people. Um, because I've been through the worst, nothing can scare me anymore. Mm, there were yeah. so many different um, occasions that I've been through um, in life that it's just sometimes I um, surprise people saying he's, he's the nicest smiley person but when that anger comes out of me I um, I don't hide it because it's a human response for somebody doing something wrong and he should be corrected if somebody gets attacked in front of my door or something the other day the lads were stealing I blocked them and um, blocked the car got out he says you, you've been stealing the neighbour's bricks I'm not going to let you get away and I says, oh. <laughs> says no this is this is where I live. And, and uh, they were Irish lads, and I taught them a lesson. I says, my, they, they don't threaten me. There's three of them. He says, there's three of us in the cab. I said, you come out. This is my doorstep. You ain't taking that away. He wasn't even mine. He was my neighbor. So they had to take the stuff out. Mm. There's an alleyway where I live. It's like a road that's blocked. And I, was, I knew what they were up to. I was coming back from work, and they were nicking the old bricks. They, they're quite um, worth some money, the old you can't get them anymore. I stopped him. But I, I, I got to finish this interview with a note on um, how it impacted someone. Hmm. I did the nightclubs, and there was a local gang called Burger Boys and Johnson, really notorious. And there was a gang fallout. So this gang members beating up in a nightclub where I was working, doing doors, beating up his newly um, the gangster, a member of, of the gang. And... Um, and I got, and I stepped forward, just one step, to say, no, I'm not tolerating that. And, and the, the gaffer that runs the show says, Mickey, don't get involved, please, because these guys are nasty. But he's already um, punched him up against the wall. He's already bleeding everywhere. And I couldn't, I couldn't stand there. I couldn't watch that. And he was a guy, a notorious guy called Simba, only a little guy, but he's dangerous. And, um, and then he got, he switched from him and me. And I love it because I, 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 I'm trying to save that guy. Uh -huh. And he says, oh, he used to call me Russian guy. I said, Russian guy, why are you getting involved? And he says, hey, I, I think it's what you're doing. It's, 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 it's wrong and it's unfair. He says, because of him, I lost my friend. Apparently he's done something wrong and they shot his best friend or whatever. Mm. And I was shaky. And when I... And, and this is the way you describe PTSD. Something attacks me outside and it becomes like a thunderstorm in me. And it's just like, I become speechless. And the sheer power that takes over the body, I can't explain. I mean, a couple of times my parents see me. I can throw people, they'll be flying like a wind. And it's just, I think, fear faces me and then I attack from that fear. But yet, I don't have physical fear. It's something attacks me and then I attack anybody in front of me anyway. So they holding me back and they took that guy on the balcony and I, I'm hearing he's throwing 
things off the balcony tables and everything. And I know in my head, I'm going to say, I'm going to get him. Man. I'm not going to let him get away with it. So before you know, I run into him and he's seen me. And I, um, I wanted to elbow him. So I did, by this time, I did a lot of martial arts, tie boxing, kickboxing, tie boxing, I was really good at all this shin work and elbows and stuff. Mm. And I elbowed him and he fell off the balcony from the first floor. It's hell of an elbow. <laughs> and um, I looked down and I was lucky. He fell on the two rugby players. They were massive rugby mm. players, guys. And um, I run down, there's police. He says, do you know what happened? He says, I, I've just seen him falling down off the balcony. I don't know what happened. So he was I, taking a selfie. You should have told the cops, like, oh, he was just taking a <laughs> selfie and he lost his footing and he fell down. <laughs> Silly boy. <laughs> I tried to catch him, but... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Simba says, do you know what happened? I says, I don't know. He just... So he looked at me and I think he almost knew that. <laughs> mm. So I went back to the club and the um, rest says, please, must go home. And I said, no, I'm not going home. But none of them seen what happened. So um, I told my gaffer what I've done. And um, he, he loved me for what I am. And I've been doing work for him all 17 years. So um, that's it. And then I wrote this guy, and I named him in the book, Simba. I wrote everything. And just two years ago, right? Two years ago, I was in a gym, so I've trained in a different gym, so nobody knows where I am. This guy comes around, jumps on my back, and the lads play about. So wrestling down, going down, looked at Simba. It's the same guy. Mm -hmm. I wrote him in a book. The gangster. And um, I says, man, what are you doing here? He says, the Russian guy, you wrote me in the book, didn't you? He says, you know, I went down to prison. The last time I went to prison before I changed, um, a Rocco, I, I, I remember giving the book to Rocco, another, another friend that gets in trouble. Quite often he's in and out of prison. Mm. Rocco read the book in three months. He's meant to stay six months because he was behaving really well. He, he, the, the, the book really inspired him because all of these guys, they know me as a, as they describe me as a, someone that never feared no one and I didn't care really. And, and, but they didn't know my past. They find it fascinating and they never mm. read the book in their life. So Rocco said, I read the book and I seen uh, Simba, so I passed it over to him. Simba never read the book in his life. It took him a year. He read a page a day, and he yeah, said, "Because um, your book is 368 pages, I think." So, yeah, yeah, that's a page so, a day. That would, yeah, in a year you're done. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he said, um, "Man, I was crying, mm. and I know, I know why he never feared none of us because you, you've been through worse than what we go mm. on, on on the streets." But what he said, and it's always educational. I feel everybody on this planet, you can learn something from everybody. He says, he says, a Russian guy, he says, don't ever um, hold the gun. Let me deal with the guns. If you do, you'd be a, a very dangerous man. Mm. And I know what he does with the guns. And um, 
I worked that out at the beginning of my life, at the early stages, that I never hold the weapons, guns. I have a great difficulty cutting a piece of bread with a knife. <laughs> and um, he gave me a great advice, same as Mike Tyson. He says, you would, when I met him, he says, he seen something in my eyes. I never even told him the story. He says, my friend, you will never understand the pain if you don't go through the pain. Mm. And that's it, my friend. I've enjoyed talking to you. I've, um, I've struggled at the beginning a lot. I, 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 he was probably the worst interview I've ever done in my life today. That's the honest opinion. I struggle. I'm... I'm I'm I want to say I'm honored to be able to listen to the story again and you're only you're only starting to tell the story just now you know and um to be honest I thought it would be easier for you to to retell the story because you've you've talked to talked about it to other people but from what I gather this thing is still very much alive inside you and um you know I don't want to say I'm lucky to listen to to the to the story or to your to your life experience but thank you so much for you know not not just for the time that you're giving this platform but you know just being brave again and sharing this message knowing full well that it every time you say it it's you, you said you said it, it kills you every time you talk about it you know and for the sake of people for the people out there you're trying to to influence to become a good role model with in behalf of all these people thank you so much you're welcome um i hope i hope people will get something out of the mm. story right um, well okay um well thank you so much if you're still with us here in this podcast you can find his books on amazon once they're on stock again uh, the Boy Who Said Nothing by Mirsad Solakovich. And uh, you said you had another book. What was, it, what was that second book called? Is it out yet? Is it published yet? Yeah, it's been published to poems of The Boy Who Said Nothing. Okay. So and it's, it's, it's just like a, a poetry. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's just a poetry. Wonderful. Okay, well, um, I've taken enough of your time. I'm going to let you... Get on with your day. Thank you so much, Mr. Solakovich, for sitting down with the Scale of It All podcast. Thank you. All the best.